The scripture this week comes from Genesis 37, 2 through 13, as well as 18 through 34. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasteurizing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to a pasture, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now. Let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness. But they do not, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brothers, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite tra traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes 30 and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son many days. The word of the Lord. Well, we are in a series on the book of Genesis, and this week we're beginning uh, the story of Joseph. Joseph's story ends the book of Genesis, but it's not just the end of the book. It's actually the fulfillment of everything that's in the book, because Joseph's story actually shows us God's answer to what's wrong with the world. What's the book of Genesis all about? Um, The basic storyline is pretty simple. Uh, God created the world to be a, a place of blessing, but because of human rebellion, the world is under a curse. So God goes to one man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham, through your family, I want to undo the curse and turn the world back into a place of blessing again. Through your family, I'm going to raise up one of your descendants, one of your offspring, and he's going to come and he's going to heal the world. That's what the whole book of Genesis is all about. Two words really can summarize the whole book of Genesis, blessing and promise. Blessing and promise. Those two words summarize the whole book and those two words actually summarize everything we hope for in this world and everything we struggle with in this world. Because we all want the world to be a place of blessing, but we also struggle to believe God's promise that it will ever really happen. Have you ever had one of those, ladies and gentlemen, God has left the building kind of moments? This passage, this story, is a train wreck of hatred and jealousy and murder and grief and outright evil. It's a God has left the building kind of moment. And especially, this story is even worse because there's no mention of God anywhere. He doesn't appear at all. Nobody talks about God. It doesn't look like God is on the scene. God has left the building in this story. And that makes it really hard to trust in God because how do you trust a God who disappears when evil shows up? But even more than that, It's the presence of evil and injustice in the world that makes it difficult, if not impossible, for many people to to even believe in God in the first place. And honestly, it's hard not to blame them. For instance, Ta-Nehisi Coates is one of the greatest writers of our generation, especially on racial issues and the African-American experience. I commend his books to you. They're wonderful. Um, But in his most recent book, he actually talks about his own struggle to believe in God, especially in the face of evil and injustice in the world. Listen to how he puts it. He says, There was a time when I believed in an arc of cosmic justice, that good acts were rewarded and bad deeds punished, if not in my lifetime, then in the by and by. I acquired this belief in cosmic justice at the vague point in childhood when I began to cultivate, however rudely, a sense of right and wrong. Tragedy is an unnatural fit on me. My affinity angles toward bedtime stories and fairy tales and preposterous romance. I would like to believe in God. I simply can't. The reasons are physical. 
When I was nine, some kid beat me up for amusement, and when I came home crying to my father, his answer, fight that boy or fight me, was godless, because it told me that there was no justice in the world save the justice we dish out with our own hands. When I was 12, six boys threw me to the ground and stomped on my head, but what struck me most that afternoon was not those boys, but the godless heathen adults walking by. Down there on the ground, my head literally being kicked in, I understood no one, not my father, not the cops, and certainly not anyone's God was coming to save me. That is a strong argument. What do you say to something like that? The story of Joseph is God's answer. And we're beginning to look at that story and beginning to look at God's answer to that as we look at this passage this morning. And we're going to do so by seeing three things here this morning. We're going to see the complexity of sin, the hiddenness of God, and the paradox of grace. The complexity of sin, the hiddenness of God, and the paradox of grace. First, we see the complexity of sin in this passage. It's easy to read this story at a very simplistic level. Uh, The evil brothers... (laughs) tried to kill poor, innocent Joseph. It's simple. The brothers are the bad guys. Joseph is the good guy. And we like it that way because that's the way we like to see the world. We like to have our enemies clearly defined for us. So you've got the good people and you've got the bad people. And on the one hand, you know, most of the people in the world we say are good, including, of course, moi. But then on the other hand, you've got, you know, there are a few bad people out there and they're the ones that are really messing it up for everybody else. It's simple. But when you really drill down into this story, you begin to see it's far, far more complex than that. One of the main things this story is teaching us is that evil is not just some force out there in the world. Evil is in the world because evil is in us. And I know that's a potentially very offensive thing to say, especially in our culture, but look with me. What's going on with this family? Why did the brothers want to kill Joseph? What was going on with that? Well, it actually starts with Jacob. Uh, Jacob, if you were with us, we just looked at his story. Jacob grew up in a home where he was constantly in the shadow of his older brother Esau. His father Isaac was constantly showing more love and affection and favoritism to his older brother Esau. So Jacob grew up with this deep inner emptiness and a constant unfulfilled need for love. Now, love is a good thing, is it not? But what did Jacob do with this need for love? Jacob was constantly fixing and focusing his love on all kinds of people that, in a way that crushed them because it laid expectations on them that they didn't have the power to fulfill. Jacob was constantly fixing his love on people and saying, you're the one. This is the thing that's going to fill that hole in my heart. So he did it with his father. That blew up. He did it with his wife, Rachel. That blew up. Here in this passage, he's doing the same thing with his son Joseph. So if you look at verse 3, it says, Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. That robe could also be translated a richly ornamented robe. People debate on how to translate that, but the point is clear. This robe was a sign of Jacob's special favor to Joseph, that that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Jacob was always focusing his love on other people in a way that crushed them because it laid expectations on them that they didn't have the power to fulfill. 
And here Jacob is doing it with Joseph. And what happens as a result of that? Verse 4 says, But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him. Love is a good thing. But Jacob's love was distorted into favoritism. And what did Jacob's favoritism do to his other sons? It distorted them too. So not once, not even twice, but three times in this passage, verses 4, 5, and 8, it says that Joseph's brothers hated him. And we've talked about this in weeks past. Genesis is an example of what we call Hebrew narrative. Hebrew narrative is famous for being very sparse. It never gives you a lot of details. That means the details it does give you are always significant. They're always important. If the Bible tells you three times in one passage about something, that means it's very important. When it says three times that Joseph's brothers hated him, that's significant. This is hate that turns into jealousy, that turns into more hate, that turns into murder. It's a vicious cycle. Now, is that just because Joseph's brothers, were they just wicked, evil people? No. It's because they have a need for love too, and that's a good thing, but their need for love is being distorted into jealousy and murder and hatred. So at Jacob, you see problems. Joseph's brothers, you see problems. But what about Joseph himself? If there's any character in this story that we say, oh, here's an innocent character in the story, it would be Joseph, right? Well... What did Jacob's love for Joseph do to Joseph? It certainly gave him a lot of self-esteem, right? <laughs> self-esteem is a good thing. We want our children to have a healthy regard for themselves. But in Joseph, self-esteem is being distorted into pride. So if you look at verse 2, it says that he brought a bad report about his brothers to Jacob. That word report, whenever it's used in the Bible, it almost always means a false report. So in other words, Joseph is purposefully lying about his brothers in order to make himself look better in his dad's eyes than his brothers. His self-esteem is being distorted into pride. And more than that, what does Joseph do with his dreams? You know, everybody in the story understands what these dreams mean. You know, they all know, okay, Joseph thinks he's going to rule over his brothers. So what does Joseph do? He tells his brothers the dream. Now, the first time that happens, maybe we could chalk that up to youthful ignorance. He's only 17 years old. Let's cut him some slack. But then he has another dream, and what does he do? He keeps doing it over and over again, even though it says that his brothers hated him for it. In fact, he has another dream, and this time he doesn't just tell the brothers. He tells the whole family, hey, guys, you're all going to bow down in front of me. Who does that? One commentator I read actually said that Joseph is turning into a sociopath he, because he's pathologically insensitive to the way that his behavior affects other people and the hurt that he's inflicting upon them. Joseph is turning into an arrogant, dishonest, insensitive, spoiled, narcissistic, and cruel person. So here's the question, you know? At the end of the story, there's evil. We see evil. Joseph is thrown into a pit. Evil. Who's responsible? Everybody's responsible. Everybody has a part to play in this. Evil is in the world because evil is in us. Okay, but does this just mean that everyone in the world is just pure evil? No, because not only does this show us that evil is in the world because evil is in us, this also shows us that evil is not the opposite of good. It's the distortion of good. You see that here. Look, everyone in this story is seeking good things, are they not? 
They're looking for love, self-regard, happiness, intimacy. Those are good things. But they've become distorted because that's what sin does. Sin takes something that's good and turns it into something that's ultimate. It turns it into a false god in our lives. And it always wreaks havoc and injustice in our lives. So for instance, it's really good to love your children. But if you make your children the way you get your identity and your meaning and your purpose in this world, then that good thing is being distorted into something that's going to be um, distorting your life. Or, for instance, it's really good to want the approval of your parents. That's a good thing. But, but if you make that the center of your life, then you'll throw other people under the bus when they stand in your way. Sin always takes a good thing and distorts it into an ultimate thing. It twists it and so that it begins distorting and twisting our own lives. That is a far more complex and nuanced view of humanity than you will find anywhere else in the world. It's in the Bible. In fact, if you go back to the beginning of Genesis, what defines humanity? What defines human beings? The beginning of Genesis says that human beings were created in the image of God, that they were created to be perfect and glorious and beautiful beings. That's what defines humanity. But sin distorts that image because sin takes good things and twists them into ultimate things, things that they were never meant to be. It's kind of like this. Have you ever been at a carnival and gone into one of those fun houses with the the funny mirrors? I don't know. Maybe that's an old thing. I haven't been to a carnival in like decades. (laughs) But if you ever have, I'll tell you what it's like. You walk into the fun house and they have all these mirrors and they're really different odd shapes. So some mirrors, when you look at them, they'll make you look like you're all squashed down. Or other mirrors will make you look like you're really stretched out. Or other mirrors will make you look like you're all wavy. The mirrors take your image and they distort your image. That's exactly what sin does. It takes the image of God, something good and beautiful and glorious, and it distorts it. The image is what defines us. Sin is a distortion of that image. And every single one of us is distorted by sin. We all have a part to play in it. Now, that means a couple of things by way of application that I just want to mention. And the first one is this. The complexity of sin means that that makes it much harder for us to see ourselves as pure victims. Something bad happens to you. Something hurtful happens to you. Maybe somebody does something to you. One of the hardest things to ask ourselves is the question, what part do I play in this? How did I contribute to this hurt? How did I contribute to this situation? That's a really hard thing to do. Now understand, sometimes things happen to us and you're not responsible for what happened to you. There are occasions like that. You know, all these Me Too stories. You're not responsible for what happened to you. But even if that's the case, you are still responsible for how you respond to what happened to you. When somebody hurts you, when somebody sins against you, how do you respond to that? Does it distort you? Does it make you bitter? Does it make you angry? Does it make your heart shrink? Does it make your heart hard? Or does it, does it make your heart bigger? Does it, does it make your heart increase? Does it, does it increase your heart's capacity for things like love and compassion and forgiveness and grace? One of the first things that the complexity of sin shows us that It's much harder to see ourselves as pure victims. But secondly, it makes it much harder for us to see other people as pure villains. Because sin does not define human beings. Sin distorts human beings. That means that when people hurt you, 
Those people are not defined by their sin. They're defined by the image of God, and that image has been distorted in them as well. So when you look at other people, including and especially the people who hurt you, what do you see? Do you see just evil, wicked, nasty people? Or do you see image bearers who've been distorted by sin? Do you see people who um, are just as deserving of, of grace and compassion as you feel you are? If you see people as image bearers distorted by sin, that is going to have a profound impact on the way you see those people, on the way you treat those people, and on what you want for those people. Do you want punishment and destruction for them, or do you want healing and renewal for them? It changes the way you see them. So, for instance, in The Lord of the Rings, um, there's a passage where the wizard Gandalf is talking with Frodo, the little hobbit, and they're talking about Gollum. Do you remember Gollum? He's a a twisted, evil little creature who's bent on killing other people. Gollum is a villain. And at one point, when they're talking about him, Frodo says, he deserves to die. And Gandalf amazingly says, deserves death? I dare say he does. But do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. I have not much hope that Gollum can be cured before he dies, but there is a chance of it. For even Gollum is not wholly ruined. There's a little corner of his mind that is still his own, and light comes through it as through a chink in the dark. Friends, evil is in the world because evil is in us. And evil is not the opposite of good. Evil is the distortion of good. That means that sin does not define us. Sin distorts us. And that's the first thing we need to see here this morning. We need to see that because only if we have that really, really clear in our mind can we go on to see the second thing that we see here this morning. We just saw the complexity of sin. We also need to see the hiddenness of God. Look at this dream that Joseph has. Actually, there's two dreams. The dream gets repeated. That's the Bible's way of saying that this is going to happen. It's decreed by God. This has been ordained by God. It's God's will. This dream is going to happen. But even more than that, this is one of those stories where, you know, you read this first passage here. It's one of those stories where you go into it kind of knowing on the front end that things are ultimately going to work out in the end. You just don't know how. So the first audience, the original audience for these stories would have been that, that Israelite community in the wilderness. They had just been freed from slavery in Egypt, and now they're traveling through the wilderness. These were campfire stories. Moses was telling them, hey, here's where you came from. Here's how you ended up in Egypt. Here's what God is doing with all of this explaining their history to them. So the Israelites would have heard this story and, and they would have known, well, okay, you know, the, we don't know how Joseph and his family are going to survive, but we know that they must have survived because we're here. So they must have survived somehow. We just don't know how. That's what this story is like. And here's why this is important. Joseph's dream is not just about Joseph. It's not just about how one day everyone in his family is going to bow down to him and how one day Joseph is going to be a great ruler. This is not about Joseph. There's way more to it than that. We find out later in the story that a famine is coming and that famine has the potential to wipe out that whole part of the world. That means that this dream is bigger than Joseph because God is using this dream. He's using Joseph in order to save the whole world. Because only if Joseph survives can Egypt survive. And only if Egypt survives can Joseph's family survive. And only if Joseph's family survives can the nation of Israel be born. And only if the nation of Israel is born can Jesus Christ be born and save the world. 
Remember God's promise we talked about at the very beginning. God promised Abraham, Abraham, one day through your family, I'm going to raise up an offspring. I'm going to, one of your descendants is going to come. And he's not just going to save one nation at one point in time. No, he's going to save the whole world for all time. That's what God is doing in this dream. This dream is God's promise. It's not just about Joseph or Israel or Egypt. This is not just Joseph's dream. This is God's promise to make the world a place of blessing again. In other words, this dream is God's answer to the problem of evil in the world. This dream is God's promise that he's doing something about it. But listen, you know, if that's the case, this dream, therefore, is pretty precious to God, no? You'd think that he'd be a little bit more careful with it, right? But what happens to this dream? What happens to this promise throughout the story? It's in constant peril. There are all kinds of little accidents and twists of circumstance. We didn't print it because it's so long, but at one point, Joseph goes looking for his brothers. His, Jacob sends him to go find his brothers. And at one point in the story, he's out in this field, dilly-dallying out in this field, and he just happens to meet a man. And it says that the man just happened to be talking to the brothers, and he heard that the brothers say they were going to go to a different part of uh, the country. And then the brothers just happened to be in a place where there was no one around so that nobody would hear Joseph scream for help. All of these little accidents had to happen in order for Joseph to get to the place where he was. And then there are all these other little twists of fate, little twists of circumstance. Only um, because of Reuben saying what he said did the brothers decide not to kill Joseph. And only because Judah said something did they decide instead to sell him to slave traders. And it's only because these slave traders that happened along were going to Egypt and not somewhere else that Joseph ended up in Egypt. This dream, this, this promise is in constant peril. And, and God is nowhere to be seen. We talked about this earlier. It doesn't mention God. It doesn't talk about God. God has left the building in this passage. And yet we find out later, Joseph says explicitly two times in his story that God was at work the whole time. You can't see him, but he's there. He's hidden, but he's at work. But why? Why does God work like this? Why would he allow Joseph to go through all of this? We're going to explore this more in the weeks to come. But even at this point, we already see this much at least. It's only because all of this happened to Joseph that he actually became the kind of person that God could use to save the world. Before all of this happens, Joseph is an arrogant, spoiled brat. And it's because this happened that he becomes a person of strength and humility and dignity and integrity. Or look at Joseph's brothers. Only because all of this suffering and evil happened do they get turned into people that are saved from their jealousy and their violence. Or Jacob, only because all of this grief and depression came into Jacob's life is he finally healed of his favoritism and his obsession. It's through the suffering and the evil in their lives that they actually get changed into different people. Because the only way any of that could happen was for God to hide and allow some suffering to come into their lives. That means that sometimes when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. Sometimes when God feels farthest from your life, he's working hardest in your life. But boy, that's hard. We don't like that, do we? You know, we look at the, you know, the pain and the suffering in our lives and we say, well, why does it have to be that way? Why can't God just come, show up, and fix things? Wave his magic wand, do whatever he does, and just fix it. Because God does work that way sometimes. 
In the very next book after this, in Exodus, God shows up. The Israelites are at the Red Sea. He parts the Red Sea. They walk through to safety. It's a divine, miraculous intervention. Why can't God do it that way all the time? Because he hardly ever does it that way. Almost all the time, the way God does it is this slow, painful process. God's always hiding. Because most of the time, God has to hide in order for us to know how much we really need him. Friends, here's why. Listen, sin is a complex thing. We've seen that. But because sin is complex, that means that that healing that sin is going to be a complex endeavor as well. Because our hearts are filled with distortions. All kinds of pathologies and self-deception and fear and insecurity and anxiety and pride, hatred, jealousy. Our hearts are filled with all kinds of distortions. And so often the only way we'll see it is if we actually come face to face with it and feel the real consequences of it. Parents, you know how this works. I mean, you you see this all the time with your children, don't you? I mean, you could tell your children over and over and over again, don't touch that stove, you'll get burned. But what do they do? They'll look at you (laughs) so they can make sure that you see that you're looking at them. All the time, their hands are inching closer and closer towards the stove. And they'll, they'll, almost as if to taunt you, just to say, see, I'm getting closer, silly grown-up, I know what I'm doing. And you'll say, don't do it, don't touch it, you're going to get burned, don't do it. All the time, they're laughing at you, that finger's inching closer to the stove. So what does a parent do? What do you do? You say, okay, go ahead. First, you turn the burner down maybe a little bit, but, but you say, go ahead, why? Two seconds later, they're screaming in agony. What did you just do? You hid your love from them just for a moment because you love them enough to know that the only way they'll really learn is if they experience the pain of of what their actions will lead to. Sometimes God has to hide in order for you to really grow and become the person that he wants you to be. Sometimes when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. You will never be the person God wants, to be, wants you to be. You will never be the kind of person that God can use in this world unless the distortions in your heart are healed and straightened out. And on top of that, God's work in your life is never just about you anyway. This dream, this promise wasn't just about Joseph or his brothers or Jacob. It was about saving the world. That means that God is always taking our little stories and he's weaving them into his bigger story. And in order for him to use you in his bigger story, you have to be healed of the distortions in your life. One of the most important things we can do, one of the healthiest things we can do, is to stop seeing everything that happens in our life as being all about us. It's not. It's not all about us. It's, it's not that it's not involving you. God is working your life, but he's also working in the world. And the more that you see that it's not about you, the more, the more that dissolves your self-absorption and your self-centeredness. And the more that happens, the more you get healed. And the more you get healed, the more God can use you. But how does this actually happen? And even more than that, how can we know, and I mean really know, that, that God is at work even when it looks like he's left the building. That's the last thing we need to see. We've seen the complexity of sin. We've seen the hiddenness of God. Lastly, we need to see the paradox of grace. Remember what ta quote said earlier when we quoted him? He said that he used to believe that good acts would be rewarded and that bad deeds would be punished. Now think about this with me. If that were true, if that's the way God worked in this world, we've got a problem. Because remember what we saw. Sin doesn't define us, it distorts us. 
Sin, in other words, is like a cancer that has metastasized throughout our whole body. And doctors will tell you that when it reaches that point, there's nothing you can do. You can't cut the cancer out without cutting the body up. There's no way to heal that cancer without destroying the body. Sin is the same way. The problem we, we have, the problem God has, is how is God supposed to destroy sin without destroying us? That's a big problem. Even more than that, how can we know that God is really at work in this world when we can't see any evidence of his work? Our lives are filled with pain and evil. The world is filled with pain and evil and injustice and suffering. How can we know God is really at work in the midst of that? The answer is grace, but it's a paradox. Because how does God accomplish his purposes in this passage? How is God fulfilling his promise here? Because there's a promise here. How is God fulfilling it? In order for Joseph to save the world, he has to be rejected by his brothers, stripped of his coat, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery. One of the most amazing things that we see here is that God is working in this world. He's accomplishing his purposes. He's fulfilling his promises, not in spite of evil, but through it. Not in spite of sin, but through it. The only way Joseph could save the world was if he had a God-has-left-the-building kind of moment. That God is working in this world not in spite of evil, but through it. That's how God works, because that's how grace works. The dream, the only way the dream can, can get strong and survive and live and flourish and thrive, the only way the dream can get stronger is if the dream's allowed to die. I was in Mississippi a number of years ago visiting someone and um, on my way back, I was driving, and, and I was making really good time, and I realized along the way that if I wanted to, I would have time to stop in Memphis and see a place I've always wanted to see. Um, no, not Graceland. The National Civil Rights Museum. It's at the Lorraine Motel, and um, it's the place where Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968. And as you walk up to the motel... Um, you can see the balcony up there where Dr. King was assassinated in front of room 306. And down on the ground in front of the balcony, there's a big plaque. And on it, there's printed um, his name and the dates of his birth and his death. And then there's a quote from the Bible. The quote is from this passage, Genesis 37, verses 19 through 20 says, Behold, here cometh the dreamer. Let us slay him, and we shall see what will become of his dream. You know, it's obvious, obvious that Dr. King's dream is nowhere near being fulfilled in this city, in this country, even in the world. There's still so far to go. And yet, his dream was killed, but when it was killed, it actually got stronger. Because I don't think anyone, maybe even not even Dr. King himself, could have foreseen that 40 years after his death, we would have our first African-American president. The only way the dream could live and grow strong was if the dream was allowed to die. Friends, the cross of Jesus Christ is the ultimate God has left the building moment. Because when he was crucified on the cross and was hanging there, all of his followers were standing around looking at him and saying, now we see what has become of our dream. Here's the dream hanging on a cross. The dream has turned into a nightmare. The dream is over. And no one knew at that very moment when it looked like the dream had died, that at that very moment in history, God was destroying all sin and evil and suffering and death for all time. 
on the cross, God was not working in spite of sin, but through it. Not in spite of evil, but through it. That's the way God works, because that's the way grace works. Because who is Jesus Christ? He's the king of the universe. He is the great ruler of all. He is the one and only one before whom all people should bow down. And yet Jesus Christ became a man. He came to the world and he came to us, his brothers and sisters. And what did we do? We rejected him. And Jesus wasn't just stripped of his clothes. You know what that coat of Joseph's meant to him? That richly ornamented robe? That was an assurance of the father's love in his life. That coat was the way that Joseph knew, my father loves me. Jesus was not just stripped of his clothes. He was stripped of the father's love so that you and I could be wrapped in it. And even more than that, you know, Jesus was not just thrown into any ordinary pit. The great Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane once said that trying to imagine the depths of Christ's suffering is like standing on the edge of a ravine a deep ravine, and then just casting a stone over the side and listening to hear it hit bottom, but you're listening in vain. Jesus Christ was cast headlong into the bottomless abyss of God's judgment on evil so that you and I could be pulled to safety, so that we could be wrapped in the Father's love, so that we could know and have a deep experience of God's love in our life, and so that we could know that even when God feels farthest, he's working the hardest. Friends, if you see Jesus doing that for you, what does that do for your life? You know, that's the way God works because that's the way grace works. It's not God punishing evil and rewarding good. It's God punishing Jesus Christ, the one and only true good one, so that he could give sin-distorted image bearers like you and me the reward that only Jesus Christ deserves. That's grace, and that's the way God works in this world, not in spite of sin, but through it. And when you see him working that way, when you embrace that work in your life, that means all of a sudden now into your life comes a humility and a repentance and a grief toward yourself for the ways that sin has distorted your own life. But there's also now in your life a grace and a compassion and a forgiveness towards other people because you see that those people aren't defined by sin. They're distorted by it, but not defined by it. And lastly, there's now a boldness and an assurance and a confidence of God's love that enters your life because you see God overcoming evil by using the power of evil against it for you. Have you seen him doing that? Are you wrapped in God's love? Have you made it your own? Only then can you know that God is at work in your life when you're in the pit. Let's pray.